well into that now. We're, well, I say we're well in. We're, we're getting to the third century, all right? Uh, we're well, we've got only 20 centuries uh, left, so hang in there. We'll get there, but uh, uh, we, want to, um, we want to ask you to take your Bible uh, to a couple of points of reference here. And uh, let me see. Let me ask you to start with, uh, oh, let's go to Acts 1.20, first of all, Acts 1.20. And we'll we'll start there. Tight, no, let me have you forget that. Um, scratch that one. Uh, go to go to Titus. Titus. Uh, yeah, let's go to the book of Titus. Timothy, Titus. The three books with a T are all in there toward the end there. And uh, book of Titus. It's a great uh, the. The books of uh, First and Second Timothy, the book of Titus, uh, they are referred to as the pastoral epistles. There's a lot said to pastors uh, in those. And so I want you to go to Titus uh, chapter 9. And one of the challenges that, uh, the, that uh, the apostle Paul gave to Titus, I mean Titus verse 9, excuse me. Uh, the, uh, just checking to see if you're listening. Uh, did that on purpose. And so... Uh, Paul's writing to this young uh, preacher that uh, he's been training and is now in ministry. He uh, introduces it, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and, the, and acknowledging the truth, which is after godliness. Uh, verse 4, to Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, that is, he won him to Christ. He had led Titus to Jesus Christ, and so uh, insofar as his faith was concerned, he's his son in the faith. And he says to Titus, grace, mercy, peace from God, our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, he said in verse 5, I, I, for this purpose, for this reason, for this cause, I left thee in Crete. Crete's an island uh, uh, there in the uh, Mediterranean. I left thee in Crete that thou shouldest uh, set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So Crete, um, if you see on the map, or if you've gone on Google Maps and looked at it closely, seen it is, uh, there are a number of uh, areas, of villages, uh, and uh, little cities on that island, and uh, yet today. And so that uh, has an ancient history there. There was churches there and several of those places. He said, I want you to go through and set things in order and work on uh, doctrinal, you know, purity and get things situated and help these churches uh, as they're being established, get established right, then ordain elders in these churches, get them set up uh, there and find men that are called to ministry and the men we've, uh, we have confidence can be trained. We work on training them, set them in order, get them, get them ready and, uh, and ordain those elders. And so that was uh, you know, part of uh, Timothy's challenge. His, uh, his work was to do that. And so in verse 9 he says, Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince, convince the the gainsayers. So he's talking about the qualifications of the bishops, the, the overseers he's looking for. He calls them by that t uh, term there in verse 7, where a bishop must be blameless, the, the uh, steward of God, not self-willed and so on. And those same similar uh, references you find in uh, Timothy, as, uh, as Paul explained to Timothy, the qualifications for an elder, a pastor, a bishop, uh, uh, these terms used interchangeably for that office. And so he's talking to Titus about that and getting him to, uh, uh, to see the importance of uh, properly training and ordaining these uh, leaders in these churches. 
that we have there. So, so that we're going to be looking at some aspects of that. We're going to be talking a little bit about church government, uh, early church government, early churches in the early centuries, that is. We're going to be looking at uh, how churches were governed, how they operated, how they functioned in the um, first century, second, third centuries. We're going to see some of the different governments that were introduced later on, talk about those a little bit tonight, so as we have time for that. So last time we saw one of the early errors, and we spent our time on that, one of the early er errors that cropped up, or in fact it was, already, it was already showing its head in the first century, was the error concerning baptism, misunderstanding uh, the baptism that saves, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the baptism that saves, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, they were uh, mixing passages up that referred to that baptism with passages that referred to water baptism, which is a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They got it mixed up, and it's easy to do, and you read the scriptures and you're not careful about the context or you're, or, or you're just uh, looking for something that's not there. Um, you, it's easy enough to, you know, to translate over into water baptism the idea of saving grace, of efficacious grace. I mean, it was a, it was a, you know, a very, a very important uh, ritual, very important ceremony that uh, was an outward demonstration of an inward cleansing that had taken place. It was a public testimony of faith in Christ. It was baptism was the thing that really was used as the identifier uh, that. Uh, that would declare that you were serious about your faith. And so it was always baptism that they, where they went after you for persecution. They didn't, you know, and it's still so today. Uh, they didn't so much concern themselves when people pro professed a personal faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior because they didn't, there was nothing, you know, publicly that you could, uh, that they could identify with an in, inwardly held belief. So, it came to the public identification and the outward manifestation of it was at the point of baptism. So it's at the point of baptism where the persecutions really uh, kicked in, really took place. And so baptism, to make a commitment to obedience to the Lord in baptism, was a very serious step, and it could be a life-threatening step in, uh, in areas where the persecutions were taking place, as it is today, where Christians are persecuted for uh, making a, uh, a, uh, taking that step of faith and identifying uh, with a, a another uh, position doctrinally uh, and identifying themselves as believers in Christ who uh, who share uh, uh, faith who who uh, who have uh, connected with the death burial and resurrection of Christ and are identifying that in baptism so persecution took place at that point thus you know the devil was very interested in confusing what baptism meant and making a sacrament out of it and so on and the seriousness of the event was uh, another contributing factor to what caused some people to believe it must have efficacious value it must have saving value and so that error we talked about that last week in detail but one error spawns another and when you begin to teach that baptism is the essential, water baptism the essential to salvation, uh, then the, the next thing that occurred was that they began to be concerned about children and infants even, that they'd go to hell if they died, and of course many children did. I mean, the mortality rate among children was quite high, uh, and uh, it, is, it remains that way in, in uh, you know, undeveloped areas and so forth of the world today. Uh, so they were concerned very much about that. So one error leads to another, and so pretty soon they're baptizing infants. Uh, it isn't really until uh, into the 
into the third century that we see sprinkling show up. Another error that follows after the error of, you know, baptizing little uh, infants and, and children that aren't old enough to believe yet. Uh, so, so they would, um, would, would uh, foster one, area, uh, one error after they had accepted another. And that was what was uh, happening there. When you're reading the accounts in history, the first one you really find recorded of um, an infant baptism seems to be about the third century, about the midway through the third century. Uh, a leader by the name of Cyprian of Carthage was a metropolitan. He was, it had come to the place where as a clergy, he had, uh, you know, he had developed a, they had developed this synod set up where the more influential larger churches in the metropolitan areas had an influence, a greater influence than they should have on other churches. And so uh, we talked about that, the development of the synod idea where uh, one, one prominent church uh, has more influence over other churches and su such like that. Cyprian was one of those. He was one of those metropolitans. He had clergy who were subject to him. Um, he had, you know, pastors and, uh, that were in other churches that were subject to him. Uh, historian J.N. Brown uh, said it this way. He said uh, of that situation where Cyprian's now, uh, where Cyprian's now uh, teaching them to baptize infants. He says, uh, in their own language, their own language is a confession. I'm quoting here from J.N. Brown. Their own language is a, is a confession that their opinion had no basis in any New Testament precedent. And so even within their own writing, they were confessing they had nothing biblical to, to back this up with, uh, but uh, they were simply doing it because they believed that to do it saved the infant and, and uh, put them into the kingdom of God. So the, the, error of, um, the error of mixing up baptism follows another error and another error, and another uh, common thing that occurred about this time that was coming into popularity was the confusion of the church with the kingdom. So the, uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and the church, uh, these, are, are, you know, these have definitions that are biblical, but they were, they were confusing the church or assuming the church was the kingdom of God. So, um, so there's a lot of things that are heaping up here, and uh, in the, by this third century, a lot's going on. Uh, the only defense these uh, baby baptizers had was that it was a necessity in their mind. That was the only defense they offered in their writing uh, that uh, we have any record of. So since the errors regarding baptism were connected to uh, another error, we talked about earlier the synods, you know, the, the idea of, um, you know, one church having more influence than others and having influence over other churches, that, uh, that it would be a good time at this point to point out the, there's four different uh, types of church government that you're going to see as you study church history, four different types of church government that are, that are beginning to develop here, uh, one that already existed in the first century, and then uh, three others that are added by, you know, even almost uh, the very end of the first century and into the se early second century, you start seeing some of these church government errors creeping in. But there are four types of church government. I'm going to call the first one the, I'm going to, for lack of a better word, call it the bishopric, all right? That, that word is used in the Bible. Uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 20 is uh, the only place that is used, as I remember, uh, Acts chapter 1 and verse 20, 
uh, take a look at that. You're talking about an office here, and um, it's only used this one time in a kind of a prophetic sense. Acts chapter 1 and verse uh, 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation, talking about Judas here, who had hanged himself and they're trying to find a replacement for him, uh, is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. So the term bishopric there is used only in that place in the Bible, but of course it comes from the root word bishop, and we'll talk about that. So in a bishopric, style the church government you have a bishop that presides over the presided over the church the bishop answered to god for its direction for its progress for its policies and uh, that that uh, form of government is what uh, is taught in the bible you see uh, hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 take a look at that one hebrews chapter 13 and verse uh, 17 we haven't gotten that far in our sunday night a series in Hebrews, but there are a couple of passages in Hebrews which refer to the office of the of the bishop. And so, uh, Hebrews chapter thirteen and verse seventeen. Let's look at verse seven for a minute. There, he says, "Remember them which have the rule over you, and have spoken unto the word of the Lord, the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, the end of the way they conduct themselves." Uh, and so to remember them, to pray for them. Uh, and uh, he's talking about the bishop having oversight there. Uh, and so in verse 17, it's more germane to the, uh, to the um, thought we're developing here. Verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account. That they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. So here it's clear and... Um, the bishopric model is the one that the Bible uh, is, is um, you know, develops. And so the bishop here is required to give account to God for the conduct of the church, for the direction the church goes. And so that, uh, that form of church government was uh, set early on. The steward, the bishop is a steward, the pastor is a steward. Elder, pastor, bishop, those three terms in the Bible used interchangeably uh, for the same office. But a, the, the bishop or the pastor is a steward. He's got a master and he's going to, a steward has to answer to the master for how he took care of what God put him in trust with. So that's a stewardship. A, a pastor has a stewardship of the church, the congregation, of the responsibilities to preach the word, to, to guide the flock, to feed the flock of God, uh, to take the oversight thereof, and all those things that are, are applicable to the, to the bishop, to the pastor, are in that form of government. So the bishops of Paul's time, of course, were charged with ordaining elders, as we read about earlier, uh, to fill places of leadership that were all over the place. The, the uh, approval of the congregations, of course, was part of that. You see it in the Antioch. Uh, you see the church recognizing the call of God on these ministers and sending them out. And so certainly the congregation is involved in it, but the leadership and the oversight belongs to the bishop because he's the one that must answer to God. So they had the oversight. And in the early era, the bishop, uh, the bishop had the oversight of only one church as a pastor. He didn't have a bishop. You don't see in the early church bishops 
you know, taking the uh, taking authority over more than one church. They didn't do that. It, it just wasn't there. Uh, so that's the bishopric form of uh, church government. And then you have the Episcopalian form, which developed early on. Um, we see the term archbishop today, which means over other bishops. The archbishop is, you know, one notch up from the bishop. Uh, so you got the archbishop. Is there an archbishop in chess? I don't know chess well enough. Uh, uh, um, Abraham, is there an archbishop in chess or just a bishop? You don't know? No, he just knows the little men. He knows how to play chess. He moves them around there good. He knows what does, what makes the moves, but he doesn't know if there's an archbishop in there or not. I think there's just a bishop, isn't there? There's the rook and the bishop, yeah, and the king and the queen and, and a few other things, some pawns and such like that. There's no archbishop in there, but the archbishop takes the oversight. Uh, in the, if you read church history, you're going to find the term metropolitan used of the archbishop. That was what they were first called. They were called metropolitan because they were the pastors in large metropolitan influential churches uh, that were, that, you know, in the early church. Uh, and so they were, they were looked at, and, you know, you can see how it would be justified. They're, they're influential. They have a large congregation. Uh, they have a large uh, outreach there in, church, in a city area like that. So these, these men came to be known as metropolitans. This was in the second century. We didn't, you don't really see it in the first century at all. It is until the second century you start seeing that term used and then it developed into the term archbishop. So what these, um, what these metropolitans were doing was ruling over a number of churches and installing pastors, sending pastors, putting pastors in these smaller villages and smaller churches. They were uh, having the oversight of them. So, and at first you're thinking, well, it seems you know, reasonable uh, that they would do that. These little villages, you know, were, were, uh, didn't have, uh, you know, much there as far as leadership. And so they had to gather a group of people together. The archbishop would appoint a pastor over there and then he would have the oversight of it and that kind of thing. But that's Episcopalian form of government really isn't a biblical model. This type of government developed into the powerful hierarchies that you see in church history in these Episcopal kinds of, uh, uh, of churches. They, what happened was the archbishops, you know, and the churches that were under them, it became more of a, you know, of a relationship of, um, you know, an overseer and, and uh, bodies of believers that had uh, under shepherds under the archbishop there, and they developed into districts and, and regions, and it eventually led to the development of what came to be called the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, this is in the 4th century, by the time you see the Roman Catholic Church show up in history. So it's into the 4th century by then, but the, but the elements of the Roman Catholic Church and the doctrinal errors of the Roman Catholic Church were already, their seeds were already there in the 2nd and 3rd century. So that was already some stuff in place, you know, like it wasn't, just completely new to the uh, Roman church there, these ideas. It wasn't something completely new when uh, Constantine came and declared in AD 313, declared the uh, Christian church, the church, the, 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 uh, the, the legal church of Rome, the religion of Rome, the Christianity, the religion of Rome. That happened in AD 313 with Constantine the emperor. Uh, but uh, but this this it isn't like it just you know all of a sudden all these ideas 
came to the pastor at the church at Rome. No, he was already a metropolitan. He's already a, um, he already had oversight of many other churches uh, going on, an unscriptural oversight of many other churches going on there. They did, the, uh, the pastors there at Rome. In fact, one of the, uh, you know, one of the um, accounts I gave you concerning the Montanists and the Novatians, uh, people that were of that mindset uh, were protesting what was going on in the church at Rome because of this hierarchical develop, uh, this hierarchy developing in there. This was before, you know, there was any mention of popes or you know um, cardinals or the College of the Cardinals and the Rome, uh, you know, the Vatican. In the, before any of that, uh, this this uh, the seeds of this were were well underway. So the Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church in England is set up the same way. It's got, uh, you know, the, the, a very similar hierarchical structure. Some Protestant denominations do as well, the, uh, the, have the external oversight. Some Pro, in fact, a number of Protestant denominations have some sort of external oversight going on. We'll talk a little bit more about them in, when we get to the Presbyterian model. So there's the bishopric, which is the one we would identify with. There's the Episcopalian church government model. And then there's the Presbyterian is the, is the third one. Um, in the Presbyterian model, there's a hierarchy there too. It starts in the local church. And out of that local church, they take older, generally speaking, older, they call them elders. Some do call them elders, but they're... One of their qualifications is to be of a certain age. Uh, they don't uh, take the uh, really young young Christians uh, or young men. Now, now in the Presbyterian Church, it's men or women, but uh, they have a uh, a board. They call it in the local church. They call it a session, a session. And this session, this board, uh, made up of people from the local that local assembly, is the one that governs that that uh, that group. That church, they govern, they, they make the decisions and so forth concerning, uh, you know, the leadership within that church. So it's not pastor-led in, in the Presbyterian model. It's a board-run, board-led church. The, uh, the pastor is more like one that's just hired as a staff person to do what they tell him to do. Uh, and so that's, that is the, the session is the one in charge there. But they have, they have a group over them that's outside the church called the Presbytery. And the Presbytery is a group of you know, higher-ranking uh, religious officials. The Presbytery is an external board. They have, they're the ones that have the authority to ordain and to install pastors in churches, to establish churches, to disband churches, or to merge churches, or to move pastors in and out. Uh, the Presbytery has that authority. They're not part of the local church. They're outside of that. They're not members of that local church. They are a board of presbyters. And so that's the second level of the hierarchy in the Presbyterian model. And on, uh, over them, there is um, the synod, which is the regional, uh, regional area. So the synod is, um, you know, uh, another group of uh, individuals that uh, oversees the usually three or four different presbytery uh, boards. So you got board, presbyters on boards that oversee uh, you know, um, the sessions oversee the churches 
and then uh, so going up the other way past the uh, past the synod level, you've got the final level, which is the the highest one in the Presbyterian uh, model, and that's called the General Assembly. And that's probably the one you've heard of or that you read of in the paper or you hear them. You know, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA is meeting and they're deciding if you're going to ordain homosexuals and, and, you know, it's all questions like that they're deciding. So they decide that and then it's passed on down through the hierarchy to the local churches and the local pastors have to do what the, you know, what the General, session, what the, what the general Assembly leaders tell them to do. And if they don't, they, you know, tell the presbytery and the presbytery steps in and moves the pastor, removes the pastor, puts another one in there that agrees with the position of the, uh, of the governing board. So you have a government that's external from the church, the local church, that uh, moves on up to that point. So the Presbyterian uh, model, in, in, in some senses, is, has its similarities to the Roman Catholic, uh, to, the, to that hierarchical model as, as well. Uh, but there are a number of different, it's not, it's not the same as the Episcopalian model. So, and the fourth uh, type of church government you find early on in, in church history is the congregational government. Now, uh, in, our, in, in our model of the bishopric type of government, we do have elements of the congregational government as well. The affairs and the decisions, though, in a, in a strictly congregational gov- uh, church, the affairs and the decisions and the direction and the policy are all a matter of majority vote. So that's, you know, a congregational church. It's going to be majority rules on everything, on, you know, what color toilet paper we're going to buy this month. And uh, so there's a lot of voting has to go on in congregational church, you know. They vote on everything. And so uh, congregational church is run by pretty much by, uh, you know, the majority uh, vote. Now they have, they have uh, you know, a board of of uh, leadership in congregational churches. Some congregational churches, not all, but some congregational churches eschew and just uh, reject any kind of pastoral form of leadership, while others have a board of elders that uh, does different things, administrates, teaches, preaches, does different people, different people doing different things and so on. Uh, and um, but they have very minimal oversight authority. The authority rests ultimately with the decision of the majority in the congregation. So, um, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a position, again, that's not a, uh, it's not completely unbiblical. There are parts of it that have a biblical sense to them, but overall it is an unbiblical model. The Lord never intended for His church to be run by the majority rule, you know, by well, whoever the most people, you know, gets the most votes uh, on, on whatever. That's the way it goes. That's not, the, that's not a biblical model at all. I don't see that anywhere in the Scripture uh, where they made decisions on direction and policy and, and on uh, ministry by voting on it in the congregation. So, so it's not a biblical model. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, there are, you know, there are all biblical Baptist churches are to some degree congregational because we, re- we uh, recognize pastors and deacons and treasurers have offices that uh, God uh, has uh, them to do. They have roles, they have responsibilities of leading and of serving in the church. And the congregation ultimately has the authority to vote a pastor out or deacons out or treasurer out or vote a new one in. So ultimately, yes, the congregation has that responsibility, but the congregational kind of government or the form of government we have recognizes the call of God on the minister and the responsibility that he has for leadership and the, and the fact that he's a, he is accountable to God. So within our, within our own uh, 
you know, form of governance we have built into our Constitution and bylaws. Uh, if, uh, God forbid, a pastor goes haywire and goes off the deep end and, and gets doctrinally you know, into uh, grievous error or sexual sin or, uh, or becomes, a, you know, a, uh, um, embezzles or is guilty of some crime, uh, then we have built within our, within our structure as a church, we have the uh, mechanisms to, for the congregation to respond to that and rid themselves of that sin in the camp. So that is there. And so in that sense, you say, well, Pastor, we got you know, that's congregational. And I would agree with you. Yes, it is. But we don't have the, uh, the overall structure of a congregational church, strictly speaking. We have more of a, uh, more of a bishopric uh, sort of a model uh, in, the, uh, in this biblical sense of the word. So, so that's, uh, you know, that gives us some sense of, um, uh, of uh, you know, what's going on in government. The, the concept of uh, the government of church, the concept of a, a hierarchy in church government um, was what uh, predicated the development of what came to be called a clergy class and a laity class, you know, like, uh, you know, that were separated, that, you know, you're, you're laity and I'm clergy and you're there and I'm here and, and that kind of thing. And that, uh, that is uh, completely wrong. You know, the, the pastor is just a servant of the Lord and uh, we are all servants of the Lord on the same plane. We're, we're serving the Lord in the capacity the Lord's called us to. So there's no clergy and laity difference. There's no distinction there uh, made in the Bible. You know, we're, we're in the same, we're on the same uh, field and we're playing, this, we're, we're, uh, playing the game against the same enemy. We're, we're, we're both uh, trying to advance the cause to the same goal and we're all working together as a team in that effort. God has just simply placed us in different areas of responsibility in that work of, of a team. So there's no, there's no clergy laity. That, that was there. There was elements of that popping up uh, early on. Remember Diotrephes that um, we read of in 3 John and John's talking about him. He's a, he said, who love, Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among the brethren. He's just a guy that loved to have the spotlight and loved to be the one, you know, and he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't receive those that Paul recommended to, to the church to help him along the way. He wouldn't let them come, these missionaries. So he was, by that time, that church had some form of, you know, error in the leadership and Diotrephes had gotten into position of uh, more power than he should have. He was probably, it was probably an elder situation, probably, you know, a, a group of pastors that were in that ministry and one of them, at least one was just uh, dead set on having the uh, you know having the preeminence, and so uh, so that was a was a problem already even then, as far as the distinctions that were beginning to develop between clergy and laity. They have in some hospitals they have clergy parking, and I'm reticent almost to park in there because I don't like to be called clergy, uh, but I do park there. So uh, if I don't, someone else will. So. so. And I'm glad over here, you see at Lowe's they got pickup parking, pickup parking, and I'm so glad I always have my pickup, so I just drive my pickup in there, <laughs> and, uh, and it's so wonderful they give pickup parking to the people like that, and the cars have to park in a different place, it's a great thing. So, uh, so anyway, the clergy laity, yeah, that is, a, that is an unbiblical separation that, uh, that we don't want to uh, promote. Um, the biblical office of pastor or elder or bishop, as you read, if you read those terms in the Bible, read the context, and you're going to see that they refer to the same office. Uh, their terms are the same office, and and the, the time in later times, uh, when we got into the by the time we get into the third century, they're separating these terms. They're 
they're putting bishop and elder and uh, pastor in three separate categories, and they're identifying them as separate offices. And in doing that, they're also altering the other office. They're off altering the office of a deacon in the hierarchical structure. A deacon fits in a different place in the hierarchical structure. And they're adding positions. They're going to be adding the archbishop. They're going to be adding the cardinal and the subdeacon and the lector and the rector and the priest and uh, the acolyte and the nun and the mother superior. And all these things are going to be added. And, of course, the papa, the Holy Pope, you know, has got to be added as well. So all these were additions that occurred in later years and weren't there in the, uh, in the establishment of the uh, early churches. So the third century saw that, that division of the clergy class taking place and the various ranks of the clergy being developed there. And so um, there were some uh, factors that influenced this hierarch hierarchical structure. And you can imagine what they might have been. I mean, they're coming out of a... Jewish culture, the persons that were, you know, first involved in the establishment of the early churches were all influenced by Judaism. Uh, many of them, most of them were Jews. And so coming out of that, you've got a structure that has all those elements in it. It's got priests. It's got high priests. It's got rituals. It's got these things that the, you know, that the ritualistic churches have. It's got the hierarchical structure. It's got your Levites in a separate category from all the rest. And it's got the priest in a separate category from the Levites. And it's got the high priest in a separate category from the rest of the priests. So it's all there in, you know, Old and it's a biblical form there. And you have, you have also something else going on. You've got a nation that is governed religiously. Their religion and their government are intertwined, inseparably intertwined in Judaism, in, in Israel. You know, they can't, they're a secular state now, but even now there's a deep, deep uh, religious connection there, and they consider themselves a secular state, and they do have non-Jews on the Knesset and so on. They do have even some Palestinians on the Knesset uh, there in, uh, in Jerusalem. But, uh, but historically speaking, they, have, they had always been a, a nation that uh, religion and politics and government was all one. So you can see that those kinds of influences were there. And then you've got the political model of, the church, of, the, of Rome. Rome was the power of the world at that time, of course. It, the Christ, Christianity and, and churches were, were brought into a world that was dominated by Rome. And Rome is a religion... Uh, based government. Their, their government was entirely religious. It was polytheistic, but uh, you had to adopt the polytheistic position of the Roman leadership, the Roman Senate, uh, to be a Roman citizen. So you had that going on in, uh, in the political system and then in, the, in, the Jewish, in their Jewish background. So you can see those elements that contributed to these errors. You know, you can see how they could have that could have developed. Another thing that was a contributor to was the fact that there was a great deal of appreciation, and rightly so, a great deal of appreciation for what they came to call the mother churches, those churches that were actually planted by the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John, those churches that were actually pastored by apostles or, or had, uh, you know, had apostolic influence on them. They thought of these, you know, the... They, they weren't supposed to, but they thought of these churches as 
something more, that there was something more there, that they had portions of the actual you know, paper that Paul wrote the word on and, uh, in Ephesus and that kind of thing. So these, the, the sense of, uh, of appreciation for these you know, founding churches moved past that to a sense of you know, these churches have, uh, ought to have more influence and, and we'll grant them, we'll allow them more influence than, than uh, the Bible does. So, so that's the, that, <clears throat> excuse me, that's the background of what's, uh, what's happening. You had the metropolitan pastors were in Rome and Antioch and especially in, in these cities and in Alexandria. So in these three very influential areas, you're going to see a lot of things contributing in the weeks ahead, you're going to see a lot of things contributing from the great schools at Alexandria and the, uh, and the um, church at Rome there and the church at Antioch. Uh, these, these influential pastors in these large cities. Um, and you're going to, we're, going to, we're going to watch that develop a little bit more as we go along. But, uh, but the, uh, the uh, third century was a century of great, great change. Uh, especially in the areas of some of these cardinal doctrines and these uh, uh, government, church government positions. So we'll stop, we'll leave it there. Let's go ahead and, and uh, take an opportunity for prayer. I'm going to ask you to, uh, to pray for um, the uh, folks that are traveling and pray for uh, uh, Jeremy and Vanessa as they have some uh, break time.